Good morning, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Um, I want to thank everyone for being here and worshiping with us today, whether you're here in person or online with us. I'd also like to express my gratitude to all of you for allowing me to share my thoughts with you this morning on this week's Torah portion, and also for my dad um, for letting me borrow his tie. <laughs> the last time I stood here was a little bit over six years ago when I gave my message at my bar mitzvah, so this is a bit of a trip down memory lane for me. Um, I wouldn't say I've become a completely different person in those six years. I would say I'm more like the same person with um, a couple more spiritual layers. And in that time, both my experience living in this sinful world as a believer and the unrighteousness of this world have greatly increased. And given the state of things, I think sometimes as believers, it can be a bit easy to feel outgunned and outmanned in the spiritual battleground that this world is. Now, the Lord never promised an easy path in this life for those that serve him. In fact, he tells us the opposite. It is a hard road that leads to life. And I don't think very many believers in Messiah are under the misimpression that it will be easy. Here we are very blessed to be able to gather and worship the Lord together in spite of this world's opposition. And although we endure mockery and slander from the culture and from lots of people in power, it is not extremely difficult to find supporting communities of faithful believers. In my opinion, believers in this country can feel attacked misrepresented and misunderstood, but I don't think it's easy to say that we feel alone for the most part. But there are millions of believers all over the world living in different circumstances, circumstances that can evoke this feeling of being spiritually alone. Christians in China who do not submit to joining a government-sanctioned church meet in tiny apartments under the fear of discovery by the police force. New Jewish believers many times stay silent about being saved out of fear of their own family's reaction. When you're living in a situation like one of these, it can be quite scary to seek out other believers to congregate with, and it results in this feeling that I described earlier of being spiritually alone. This is by no means a message reserved for people living in situations like the underground Chinese Christian or the Jewish closet believer. I hope that my thoughts this morning will be of use to anyone that needs to hear them whatever situation they might be in. I believe that in this week's Torah portion, there is a message of encouragement to be found for anyone that is feeling spiritually alone. There are some passages in the Bible that are absolutely dripping with symbolism and prophecy. They're just brimming with both surface level and deeper messages. Some of my favorite examples that come to mind for me are the Sermon on the Mount and Isaiah 53. Then there are passages which I found frequently appear in the Old Testament that seem to be, at first, nothing but a barrage of numbers, figures, and seemingly mundane directions and information. I like to refer to these as data passages because at first glance, they seem to be nothing more than biblical data dumps. The Torah portion this week, which comes from Numbers 1.1 to 4.20, is one such passage. And for me, sometimes analyzing these passages can be a little bit, a little bit difficult to start, to start with. This morning, after I finished, we'll be hearing from my brother, 
And after finding out that we would be speaking in the same service, he said something to me which started to make more sense after beginning my study on this passage, which was uh, dibs on the Haftorah. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think we can glean a message from this portion. We are presented with a census of the tribes of Israel, and then we are given the number of men eligible for war in each tribe. The Lord then commands Moses and Aaron in Numbers 2-2, the people of Israel shall set up camp by his own standard with the banners of their father's houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. We are then given the camp arrangements for each tribe relative to the tabernacle. On the east side, we have the tribes of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. On the south south side, Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. On the west, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin, and on the north, Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. After this, in chapter 3, we are told the special duties and living arrangements for the Levites. Verse 5, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting, as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over all the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. The Lord then places the Levites between the tabernacle and the other tribes, placing them on all four sides, splitting them up by the clans of Levi's three sons, the Gershonites, the Kohathites, and the Merarites. On the fourth side were Moses, Aaron, and his sons themselves. They were called to, in chapter 3, verse 38, guard the sanctuary itself and protect the people of Israel. And any outsider who came near was to be put to death. In each of the clans of Levi's three sons were assigned different tasks relating to the upkeep of the tabernacle. The Gershonites were assigned to the tent covering, the entrance screen for the tent of meeting, and the hangings of the court, and the screen for the door of the court that is around the tabernacle and the altar. The Kohathites were assigned to guard the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the vessels, and the screen. Finally, the Merarites were assigned to guard the frames of the tabernacle, the bars, the pillars, the bases, and all their accessories. Now, the obvious question is, why the Levites? Why were they chosen from among the thousands of Israelites to be the closest, both literally and figuratively, to God? To answer this question, we have to go back to Exodus. Turn with me to chapter 32, verse 26. Here we read that Moses has been up on Mount Sinai for 40 days, and the people have decided to make their own God. They take gold and fashion a huge calf to worship, and they submit to sin under the shadow of their own false god. Moses returns from the mountain to this site and cries out in verse 26, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord your God of Israel, Put your sword on each side of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. 
And on that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. One of my favorite biblical concepts is what it means to be holy. It does not mean to be pious or to be righteous or to be a good person. It means to be set apart. Because the Levites followed the Lord while their brothers and sons followed their own sinful desires, the Lord chose them to be set apart from the other tribes, both while in the desert and when they finally reached the promised land. We read that the Lord speaks to Moses in Numbers 35, verse 2, saying, Command the people of Israel to give to the Levites some of the inheritance of their possession as cities for them to dwell in. And you shall give the Levites pasture land around the cities. The cities shall be theirs to dwell in, and their pasture lands shall be for their cattle and for their livestock and for all their beasts. When the Israelites finally came into possession of the land of Canaan, in Joshua chapter 13, we read about the inheritance of land given to the people of Israel. Each tribe is given a section of land except for the Levites. In verse 14 we read, To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings made by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said unto him. You see, the Levites first choose righteousness over sin in the golden calf incident. And they are promised a blessing by the Lord because of it. They are given the opportunity to be closer to God than any of the other tribes. And when the time came, they had no need of their earthly inheritance. It is not until after both the census numbers for the other tribes and the duties of the Levites are given to us in the Torah portion that we are given the numbers for the tribe of Levi. As Karen to Aaron said earlier, numbers are important. And I think, and I think there is a message in in these numbers that were given. The number of men aged 20 and older in the other tribes as given in Numbers 1 are as follows. Reuben, 46,500. Simeon, 59,300. Gad, 46,650. Judah, 74,600. Issachar, 57,400. Ephraim, 40,500. Manasseh, 32,200. Benjamin, 35,400. Dan, 62,700. Asher, 41,500. Naphtali, 53,400. If we skip to chapter 3, verse 49, we see that the number of all males in the tribe of Levi, not just 20 and older, is just 22,000. This tribe was the smallest by far, smaller even than the half-tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. I think that the relationship between the Levites and the other tribes reflects on a smaller scale the relationship between the body of Messiah and the rest of the world. The Lord specifically commands us to be unlike the other nations. Leviticus 20, 26 reads, You shall be holy unto me, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. Let's go through a couple of examples of periods when Israel fell out of favor with the Lord and went through dark times. 
the golden calf where they fashioned for themselves a graven image because they wanted to be able to see their God, the reign of Saul who they appointed because they wanted a king to rule over them, the exile to Babylon because they were unfaithful to their Lord. Each of these periods when they fell out of favor with God came from one place, a desire to be like the rest of the world. For this reason, I think the fact that we are so different from everyone else is actually an encouragement. We are given a clear blueprint with how to be in God's good graces. Don't be like everyone else. If you feel like the world starts applauding you, like it is welcoming you as one of its own, that is a sign that you need to stop and reconsider what you're doing. There should be alarm bells going off in your head when you stray too close to the rest of the world. The minute that we as believers accepted the gift of salvation, we became members of a kingdom that is not of this world. If we are part of a different kingdom than the world, why should anyone be surprised that we are different? We are constantly asked, why are you so different? Why are you like you? The answer to that question is, you and I are part of different kingdoms. If you feel alone spiritually, by all means, seek out fellowship with other believers. But in the meantime, be encouraged. You are not alone. You are set apart. The Levites were presented with a choice between the world and the Lord and chose the Lord at the cost of their sons and brothers. They were given a heavenly inheritance rather than a worldly one. This very small group of faithful servants was then blessed by being set apart from the rest of Israel to serve the Lord and be close to him and experience his presence more directly than anyone else. Everyone in the body of Messiah was presented a choice between the world and the Lord and chose the Lord at the cost of their relationship with the world. We were then given a heavenly inheritance worth infinitely more than a worldly one for we have no need of earthly treasures. We, this very small group of faithful servants, were then blessed by being set apart from the rest of the world to serve the Lord and be close to him and experience his presence more directly than anyone else in both this life and the next. Thank you for your time and for letting me share my thoughts. Please welcome my brother to the stage. Hello there. My name is Brendan. Many of you know me, some of you don't. I am one of the Roses. My father leads music, my mom plays piano, and I play the djembe. My brother and sister also, per, also go and play on the worship team. So now that I've introduced myself, I want to start with a story, okay? So we all know, whether you're a child, a teenager, an adult, how important summer vacations are. That's right. It's like the best thing, like every Monday morning where you wanted to keep sleeping in, or every late night of homework that you were studying for a test, it's just like, let me just push through, I'll get to summer, I'll have two months where I don't need to do 
anything. It's amazing. So, with that said, I would like to tell you about a time, probably two years ago, it was my first year in high school. I was a freshman, and the school that I uh, went to, it's very, very, um, I wouldn't say like extremely prestigious, but it was pretty hard. Um, and I also played football, and so it was like late nights of homework and hour-long practices after school and games on Friday, and it was just like so tough, and I just kept pushing and pushing for that summer vacation. Well, time came. It was about a week before school ended. I was almost there. And my dad says to me, Brendan, you need a job. <laughs> and so I was like, I mean, you're not wrong. So he said, well, there's this hardware store that's about five minutes from our house, and I would like to go down there with you and go meet the owner and see if we can, um, I don't know, sign you up. I was like, okay. So we went down there, and it was a pretty shady area. <laughs> but um, I was 15, and I was all grown up, so it didn't matter to me. <laughs> um, I basically, um, I, can't, I went there and met the owner, gave him my phone number. He's like, great, I'll call you back. And whatever, we left, went home, and um, went back to school. And the following week, it was like a Thursday, and that Friday was our last day of school. And I was, I, was in, I was in class, and my phone rang in the middle of the school day, and I went out to the hallway and picked it up, and it was the owner of this hardware store, and he says, is this Brendan? I said, uh, yes, sir. Um, he said, well, I have an offer to make you. Can you come and work for me from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday? <laughs> and I was like, the, the numbers didn't even hit me, and I was just like, uh, yes, sir. And he was like, great, you start Monday. And he hung up. And I was like, oh, great. And so I called my dad, and I was, it, was, it was crazy. And then as the day continued, I started to actually realize what I had signed up for. <laughs> so basically, let's see. Um, I, I really wanted the summer vacation. And it turned out that I was sorting screws for two months. And... I have some funny stories that I could go on about about the store, but um, we'll continue. But um, eventually, I made roughly $1,500 that month at the hardware store, and I didn't spend a penny of it until um, about the next year. Um, it sat in my savings account, and I didn't know what I was going to spend it on. I was just going to save it and save it. Um, well, it turns out the following year, um, in the summer, I had an opportunity to go on a mission trip to Costa Rica, and that was amazing. And I, we went um, with a church that um, I'm not a member of, um, but it's my dad's um, side of the family. They live in New York. It's their church. And, they, and since I wasn't a member, I couldn't participate in the church fundraising. And so for everyone else, it was about $300, and for me, it was about $1,600. And I, along with many people here that still remember, I, I went around and many people helped me, helped finance with me. I also put about $1,000 of that money that I earned down um, from the hardware store. And 
That, that mission trip, it, it changed my life. It made me see things differently. It made me see God differently, and it was just amazing. And so I sacrificed that summer. Um, I sacrificed that summer vacation that I really wanted, and it turned out to reward me more than I could have imagined. If that time would have came and I didn't have $1,600, I would not have gone, and I would not have experienced what I did then. So, with my story done, I want to open our, the study of the Hathor portion in a word of prayer, quick word. So, Father God, thank you for letting us all be here today. Please give us clarity of thought and concentration on the portion, and please speak through me. In Yeshua's name, amen. So we're going to go through the Haftor portion today, and um, we'll read along, and I will um, and period- periodically stop, and I'll share with you some things that I, um, that I found that were like really spoke out that I'd like you to hear. So if you could please open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 20, and we'll start on verse 18. And while you guys are opening up there, I'll give you some context. So first of all, David has been an excellent captain of Saul's army for years. And at this point, he was too successful for Saul. Saul became, Saul got afraid because everyone loved David, and Saul was king. And so Saul, um, that, that fear of being overthrown by David um, just settled in, and that fear in Saul, it turned to jealousy and that jealousy turned to anger. So for 10 years, Saul hunted David, and David was hidden. David was hiding in Ramah with the prophet Samuel. And over countless attempts by Saul to go in and assassinate and kill David, for 10 years, assassins would enter into this um, place to kill David, and they would be overwhelmed with the Spirit of the Lord. They would fall on their knees and they would worship and they would forget all of their intentions and they would just fall before God's glory. And um, they would fall before God's glory and Saul, um, Saul was just very, very mad at this and eventually after 10 years, Saul was like, you know what, I'll just do it myself. He goes to this place, guess what happens? The same thing. Saul's heart gets turned and he enters into the place and falls on his face and worships the Lord. And David sees this, and it's just beautiful. Um, so basically where this portion starts is after this. David needs to make the decision, okay, did Saul's heart turn? Can I return to the kingdom? Can I return to my place in the army? Can I return to my family, my home? And he was still hesitant. But Jonathan, who is Saul's son, David's best friend, is like, Saul's heart has turned he's back to normal. You can come in, and David is still suspicious, and, and Jonathan's like, you saw what happened. You saw what happened in Ramah. You saw that he worshiped the Lord. You saw that his heart was turned, and David still um, did, not, did not think that as well. So, basically, we're going to start here at verse 18, if you could read along with me. Jonathan said to him, tomorrow is Rosh Hodesh, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. He's saying this to David. The third day, hide yourself well in the same place as you did before. Stay by the departure stone. I will shoot three arrows to one side as if I were shooting at a target. Then I will send my boy to recover them. 
If I tell the boy, they're here on the side of you, take them, come, it means that everything is peaceful for you, and Adonai lives. There is nothing wrong. Verse 22, but if I tell the boy, the arrows are out there beyond you, then, go, then get going because Adonai is sending you away. Verse 23, as the matter we discussed earlier, Adonai is between you and me forever. So I want to pause there. So basically, Jonathan says to David before this, what do you want me to do? I will help you. And David says, oh, good thing you asked. So David wanted Jonathan to help him perform this test for Saul. And this test would be, uh, Jonathan would go to this dinner. And at this dinner, um, Jonathan would see Saul's heart, see Saul's intentions. And when he figured out if Saul's heart was truly turned or if it was or if it was hard still, he would go back and he would perform this test with the arrows, and David would see, and in one scenario, David would flee, in one scenario, David would come back. So I want to also, in verse 22, let me read this verse 22 again. But if I tell the boy, the arrows are out there beyond you, then get going, because Adonai is sending you away. Notice here it says Adonai is sending you away. It does not say Saul's persecution is sending you away. David is the Lord's anointed one. And truly, if it was God's will, David could walk right into the kingdom of Saul and take it. If it was the Lord's will, no one could touch David. With all of Saul's armies, no one could touch David if it was the Lord's will. But you notice here, when he says, the Lord send you away, that is, that is God saying to David, it is not time yet. It, your time will come. So the truth is that David, that Saul does not pose a threat to David, although it seems the opposite. But, um, he, but truly David needs to stay where the Lord tells him to stay and go where the Lord tells him to go. Verse 24 continues. So David hid himself in the countryside. When Rashodesh came, the king sat down to eat his meal. The king sat next uh, the king sat at his usual place by the wall. Jonathan stood up, and Avner sat next to Saul, but David's place was empty. However, Saul didn't say anything the first day because he thought something, something probably happened to David. He's unclean, maybe. Um, yes, that's it. He isn't clean. Also, I want to pause here. It says he, so I think one word to describe Saul's heart is just inconsistent. It's hard, then it's soft. It goes up, and it goes down. And David, and Saul is giving David the benefit of the doubt here. He's like, all right, maybe he's unclean. I'm not going to get mad. And Jonathan sees this, and he's like, maybe his heart is turned. Verse 27 continues. The day after Rosh Odesh, the second day, David's place was empty, the second day. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to this meal either yesterday or today. Now, this is one of the in-between-the-lines parts. I want to pause here, and um, there. now this doesn't seem like it's a big role in the plot, but, but um, remembering what is Jonathan's purpose there to that day, to figure out if Saul's heart has changed. I feel like if we had a time machine, we could go back I could whisper into Jonathan's ear what I'm about to tell you. Jonathan would know his answer, and he would just skip the rest 
and go and tell David. But basically what happens is, notice how Saul refers to David as the son of Jesse. Okay, on the surface, that, I mean, that's, that's correct. He is the son of a man named Jesse. But based off his word choice, you can see where Saul's heart is, or at least where it's starting to turn. His, like, Saul could have called David, not the son of Jesse, but he could call him the captain of my army. He could call him the slayer of Philistines. He could call him the killer of Goliath. He could have said even my son-in-law. But no, he chose to use the son of Jesse, who is one of thousands of lowly shepherds in Bethlehem. He wants to give David his lowest title, call him by his lowest name, and I don't know if Jonathan saw that or not, but I mean, that's, that's something that I caught, and I think it's very important. Verse 28 continues, Jonathan answered to Saul, David begged me to let him go to Bethlehem. He said, please let me go, because our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother demanded that I come. So now, if you look on me favorably, please let me get away and see my brothers. That's why he hasn't come to the king's table, Jonathan's response. Verse 30, at that Saul flew into a rage at Jonathan and said, you crooked rebel, don't I know that you've made this son of Jesse your best friend? You don't care that you're shaming yourself and dishonoring your mother, do you? Verse 31 is important. It says, because as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor the kingdom, nor your kingdom will be secure. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. Saul believes if David lives, his kingdom's in jeopardy. Jonathan's kingdom is in jeopardy. And you know what's so crazy is that Saul is actually right. In David's alive, his kingdom is in jeopardy. But this is where this, this like sacrifice that I mentioned earlier comes into play. Do you think Jonathan would like the throne of Israel? Obviously, yes. But what does he do? He sacrifices. He sacrifices his role as the future king of Israel because he knows that David is God's appointed one. So Jonathan sacrifices immensely. Jonathan continues, Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? Big mistake. You don't reason with someone that's angry. (laughs) Especially Saul, who can take your head off like that. But Saul threw his spear at him, aiming to kill Jonathan could no longer doubt that his father was determined to put David to death. And that's what we'll stop reading. But let's recap here. Imagine you're sitting at a dinner table with friends and family. Everyone's eating, talking, enjoying the time together. And the owner of the house, the host of the meal, he stands up and he's in a shouting argument with the son at the other end. And he curses at his son. He, his son. he shames him. And everyone stares and are, is quiet. The master of the house stands up, shaking the table, knocking everyone's bowls of soup over. And he st- grabs his spear and hurls it across the table at his son. And everyone's just watching. <laughs> this literally was what happened. Like, the little details are not mentioned in this part. But like, you can just imagine what everyone's thinking. It's just like, what, what's happening? So it's crazy. Okay, now, 
where this said, it's just crazy to think of how utterly delusional and prideful Saul is against his own son, who is almost nothing but righteous and self-sacrificing. Personally, if anything, I'm inspired by Jonathan. I know this passage is not mainly talking about the good guy in the story David or the bad guy in the story Saul, but it's talking about an overlooked character who is sort of like the second good guy. But the one thing that we know is that Jonathan's sacrifices were just incredible. So I want to close just by asking a few questions. Do you believe that sacrifice is important? Not only do you believe is it important, but do you believe that it's essential for being a follower of the Lord? Are you sacrificing yourself? Do you make sacrifices in your life that maybe don't hold the same weight as Jonathan did to give the kingdom to David? But do you make sacrifices in your life that are enough to where people see the Lord through you? What if we do this? What if we look at Jonathan's sacrifices that he made for God and compare it to our own sacrifices that we can make in our daily lives? If we do this, will people see the Lord through us? If we make sacrifices that benefit the Lord and its kingdom, will we be walking in a more righteous life just like Jonathan did? The answer is yes. I'm not saying go get a job at a hardware store and throw away your fun summer. What I'm basically saying is when the opportunity presents itself for you to sacrifice, don't hesitate because truly it will benefit you. So I want to close in a prayer. Father God, thank you for, thank you for this Shabbat day. Thank you for this beautiful service. Thank you for the worship team and the cantor team. And thank you for my brother and I. Thank you for that we can give everyone here this amazing message. Um, I would like to pray that we would be able to see more sacrifices that we can make for you. Um, I pray that we would have the strength and courage to execute them, and that you would both give us the strength we need, and we can find it within ourselves as well. Help us come before you boldly, like my dad said. Help us become, come before you boldly and not shamefully. Father God, I thank you for everything, and amen.